I love that. And we did Arch, and I liked doing that. Mm-hmm. You know what? But we're going to have to compile it. Like, we can't just do Gen 2 and then just get pre-compiled mm-hmm. binaries, man. Like None of them? Maybe the kernel, but... I was going to say, like, that's nah, common, man, I, think. I, want, I, think, I, want... I think a lot of people do. Well, at the beginning, but then could we not compile the next kernel and just... and well, you not, could. not to use it long term, but to... Can't, I, I think we should do where we compile the kernel and then at least boot into it. That's it. And then, you know, use pre-compiled kernels for the rest of the time or something like that. But you got to get your chops, right? Like, I feel like I feel the same way about Gen 2 that I do about Arch. And if you're not doing it the hard way, you're not doing it. Both Slack were the same thing, right? <laughs> right. E- exactly. Exactly. Like, if you're not, you know, administering your packages, then what's the point of using Slackware? Yeah. Um, so if you're not compiling your packages, what's the point of using Gen 2? And if you're not, not wrong. you know, cobbling your OS together, what's the point of using Arch? Well, they would say the AUR. Someone would say the AUR, but no, because now we have DistroBox now, and I can use the AUR wherever I want. Hmm, hmm. So that just means Arch is useless, unless you cobble it together yourself. Coming up in this episode, CentOS. It just sent us. Hey, and welcome to Linux User Space. I'm Leo. And I'm Dan. Dan! They fixed it! Uh, Yeah, well, sort of. of. Right? Almost. You'll get it later. You'll get it later. Yeah. So I'm talking about the the font thing. I mentioned it at the on the on the previous show, and I I tweeted about it and stuck it on Mastodon too. Well, it's a good thing I stuck it on Mastodon because uh, who better to come to the rescue than someone that knows his stuff, Carl George of Red Hat showed me that there was an actual fix for this. Yeah. It was a couple of different pieces that uh that re- needed to be fixed, but I think right now all I'm doing is waiting on an update to one of the Flatpak runtime. So, if you didn't catch last show, here's what happened. There uh in CentOS as I'm running it, I'm uh enjoying Cantorell, which is the default font in CentOS and Fedora and Red yeah, Hat and most, all that. A lot of places. Right. And, um, you know, normal apps, apps that are installed via DNF, those come up just fine. Right. But if I install certain Flatpak apps, and in uh, in my case, it was Audacity, which uh, when you opened it up, and I think I misspoke on the last episode, too. I said the Audacity part in the title was the boxes, but that actually was like the only word yeah, in the that title. showed yeah. up. And then the clock down at the bottom in Audacity showed up right as well. Nothing else did like any any kind of the the message. Oh, yeah. Uh, when I had killed it and tried to bring it back, um, it was like, hey, do you want to recover this project? My first thought was, what? What? <laughs> yeah. Because I know that window. Right. But it didn't actually say that because all it said was boxes. Yeah. It and uh, but my thought was there was no project to recover. But I appreciate you asking. Now, which box do I press? Yeah. There were three choices. Your, your screenshots that you had posted on Twitter and, and Mastodon were 
excellent in detailing the issue. I, I think that's why I got picked up so fast. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, so what I ended up doing uh, was trying to fix it using uh, flat seal permissions. And obviously that's not going to work when flat seal itself shows up with the same exact problem. So you got like a hundred different options on the right, but you can't read any of them. Right. So you don't know what to toggle. Uh and so with that not working, I decided, well, let's go to fonts. I'll, I used Google Noto, um, installed Google Noto, because I figured that would trigger an update of like the font cache font thing. Font cache, yeah. And, and, you know, everybody would know about it. So anyway, installed Google Noto, switched to it, and the problem was resolved. Uh, but as I mentioned, I post this on Mastodon. Carl George, uh, with the assist, showed me the bugs where they were reported and uh, that they were already getting fixed. So I didn't even have to report any bugs or anything like that. I just, again, I just, yep. I just need to be patient. Yeah, which is fine. Yeah, well, you know, I don't want to be patient. I want my fix now. Yeah, I get you. I get you. But the the cool thing is, though, um, because we're on CentOS Stream, I'll get it before the RHEL folks do. So that's yeah. Well, it it, it cool, will get released in RHEL, the next point release of RHEL. It'll it'll happen, you know, in CentOS Stream, which makes it yep. happen before before that release. Exactly. And so that's great. So I get the fix first. That's cool. But what was cool? Well, like one really, really, really cool thing that came out of all of that is you got Carl George out of the woodwork and uh, he we had a good conversation with Carl. And, uh, you know, we talked about obviously your fonts and a whole bunch of other things. Mm -hmm. And and he gave us some technical pointers, um, which I don't know, they really filled some gaps in, I think, for this episode. Yeah, he had been working on a timeline thing. To kind of put all of the different releases together because, I mean, it's not just, you know, spoiler, it's not just one release of CentOS that we're working off of here. This ain't Arch Linux here. Right. Um, there are a lot. Mm -hmm. And we go deep into the history. I mean, deep. You'll see. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. We go pretty deep into the history and his timeline was invaluable. Yeah, I mean, was. sure, they had uh, like there's a Fedora project timeline in the wiki as well and uh wikipedia exists and all that stuff but um i think his his timeline had a little bit extra pizzazz in it, it that did. that really helped us line some things up um and make things a little bit easier but i would not call this history easy at all no far from it oh oh, oh, oh. so if it weren't for carl i think uh there, there might have been a couple of missteps there there may still be some now but i'm still super super duper appreciative of everything you know all of the knowledge that he imparted on us absolutely if you haven't subbed on youtube and tilvids do it now while we have you distracted and you know i i realize we've made the big time leo um <gasps> uh, because one of our tilvids videos got picked up on reddit and like Yay! all things on reddit there were comments yeah um they called us out because we pronounced the first editor uh ed Ed, because we affectionately named it that because it flows a little better in, in the in the thing. But it is incorrect. It is incorrect. We know it's incorrect. We're sorry for that. Yeah. Uh well, not not too sorry. Just a little sorry. A little uh, sorry. So many so many syllables were skipped by by calling it Ed. But um yeah, yeah, both Dan and I, we do, we know. Yeah. For for our purposes, it's Ed. It's Ed. But 
Brian Kerrigan, who's one of the you know writers of said thing. Yeah, he calls it ED, and and like somebody made sure to highlight a video where he he actually called it that. So yeah, yeah. I know, I know. So it's, it's <laughs> that it's, was a cool video though. It was a cool uh, video, I, and there's I, more videos that that I think I'm going to be following up on actually out of that. There, there was this one, and uh, I know we don't do a community focus in this one, but I, I just we'll we'll have to find it. Maybe I might, we I might save it, it for another... the next community focus. Seriously. It, and I can't remember what it is, but somebody teapot or something sat down with Kernigan to talk about Auk. Yeah, and said and Auk and like all of those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the 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 K in Auk stands for Kernigan, which yeah. he was one of the of the three authors of that. Anyway, so he got to sit sit down and, and talk about it. But anyway, uh, yeah, th- this is uh, way off topic. <laughs> way off topic, but we I know we made it big time on Tilbid, so there you go. That's it. So if you haven't if you haven't subscribed on uh, on the old Tilvids, go do that. And don't forget, you can watch us live on Twitch the day after an episode drops. So you know if things are going as planned, we'll have a have a live you know session there. You can watch us there. You can join in our Discord lounge, and we can have a conversation together, all of us, and it'll Woo-hoo. be streamed live on Twitch. Let's do it. You can watch for the announcements in all the social places. I love our patrons, and I know Leo does as well. And if you, too, love what we're doing here, you can support us at patreon.com slash linuxuserspace. The 90s was a decade filled with new technology, proliferation of the internet, and, of course, the dancing baby. It was also a decade that would change the direction of the internet and the bits that backed it forever. Wildest 90s talk? When the first release of CentOS came out in 2004? Well, to truly understand where CentOS came from, we'll need to travel into the fuzzy past of the early 1990s where Red Hat Software Linux, or RHS Linux for short, began. Mark Ewing, the founder of Red Hat, began the work alongside Bob Young, to get things going, and eventually recruited Damian Neal as a summer intern in 1994 to help with the development of what would soon be named just Preview. Preview was released internally using the RPP package manager. No version number was assigned, but it used the 1.1.18 development kernel. On October 31st, 0.9, codenamed Halloween, was released, giving the user a choice between a stable or development kernel. And there was documentation in the box. It also brought with it the Linux Installation Manager, written in Tickle and TK, which allowed graphical installation of packages. But the stable 1.0 release wasn't until May of 95. It was codenamed Mother's Day, even though it wasn't released on that day. Also in 95, the original logo, a red and very tall top hat, on top of a serif-marked Red Hat software, was revealed. And just a few months later, in September, 2.0 was released, without a codename. But it brought with it the first stable release of RPM to handle packaging, and began its journey to become one of the two most dominant packaging formats in existence. The 2 series was eventually named Blue Sky. In March of 96, with a release imminent, Bob Young, 
the then CEO, made the decision to stray from the intended 2.2 release version of Red Hat and bump it up to 3.0.3. It was named Picasso. It also brought with it Glint, the graphical Linux installation tool to act as a graphical front-end for RPM. And rumor has it that the release was versioned this way to compete with Slackware's 3.0 released the year prior. And if you want to know how Patrick Volkerding felt about versioning, check out our Slackware episode in Season 2, Episode 19. There was also a new new logo. A yellow background with a man hastily walking to the right, holding onto a red fedora on top of his head. In October, Shadow Man, the iconic obscured face with a red hat circled in black on a light and dark blue spiraled background was introduced alongside 4.0. This release was named Colgate and was the first stable release with a kernel not from the 1.0 branch, but used the new 2.0 branch instead. In December of 1997, Red Hat Linux 5.0, named Hurricane, released. It got its name because of a recent hurricane that made landfall near the Red Hat offices and brought in the real audio client and server. Elsewhere in the Linux world, in 1998, Mandrake Linux released its first version named Venice, based on Red Hat Linux 5.1. But by 1999, Mandrake had taken on its own identity, leaving its Red Hat dependence behind. In April, Red Hat Linux 6.0, named Hedwig, saw the addition of GNOME 1 and another logo change. Only this time, Shadow Man remained, and the blue background was simply changed to red. The font also changed, from serif to sans serif. And with 6.1's release in October, Red Hat began offering a separate support subscription for its enterprise customers. After surviving Y2K, version 6.2, named Zoot, was released in two parts around April of 2000. One part being 6.2e, which came with commercial support, and 6.2, which didn't. In September, Red Hat 7.0, named Guinness, was released and brought with it a mistake. Red Hat used a development version of GCC and called it 2.96, even though it wasn't actually released. It wouldn't have been much of a problem until everyone found out that it wouldn't even compile the Linux kernel. After a walk back, some patching, and testing, Red Hat later agreed to rename their version of GCC to 2.96. R-H. In March of 2002, Red Hat decided to count backwards, but add support. Red Hat Enterprise Linux 2.1, named Pensacola, was released with four variants, Advanced Server, ES, WS, and Desktop. Why not RHEL 1.0? There are rumors that the major version 1 and the minor version 0 was to be avoided as they both held very negative connotations at the time. The enterprise part of the name brought with it long-term commercial support that was much easier to manage than the rapid-fire releases of Red Hat Linux before it. This started what we know today as RHEL. Sometime within the year, Warren Togami starts the Fedora Linux project. No, not that Fedora. Yet, anyway. 
It started as a computer science project at the University of Hawaii and aimed to bring together additional packages for Red Hat Linux by consolidating developers and extra packages into one place. But it wasn't a distribution on its own. It was extras for the existing Red Hat Linuxes. In September, Red Hat Linux 8, named Psyche. It released and brought with it Blue Curve, a theme for GTK that permeated most distros. In March of 2003, Red Hat Linux 9, named Shrike, is released. And later, in July, Severn, the beta, which would eventually become Red Hat Linux 10, was released and marked the change from an internal-only type development cycle to a more open and community-focused development process. And in September, Fedora is the future. The Red Hat Linux project announces that it's merging with the Fedora Linux project to create the Fedora project. Now finally, on to the origin of CentOS. So, elsewhere in the world, but also still in September, Greg Kurtzer and Rocky McGaw join up to finally create Chaos, the community-assembled operating system, something that's been in the works since earlier in the year. The idea, at this point, was for Chaos to be a clone of RHEL 2.1, but Greg was opposed to it being just a clone. Rocky suggests building Chaos 1 base, and Greg can make Chaos 1 enhanced, both maintained side by side. One couldn't really exist without the other. Chaos needed a base, which became CentOS. And the extended suggestion by Rocky is what Chaos eventually became, at least in the beginning. In October, Red Hat Enterprise Linux 3.0, Tarun, based on Red Hat Linux 9, is released. In mid-November, a pre-alpha version of Chaos was being shown to attendees of the Supercomputer Conference in Phoenix, Arizona. It focused on mixing bleeding edge and stability with a long support lifecycle instead of just a RHEL clone. Later in November, Red Hat signals that it's going out of the boxed Linux business and drops a bomb by announcing that support for Red Hat Linux 7.1.2.3 and 8.0 is over as of December 31st, 2003, giving users just under two months to migrate. 9.0's demise in the same announcement was stretched out to the end of April 2004. As you could imagine, and as with any major change in a Linux distribution, there was a seemingly endless torrent of disagreements with this move. But even with the relatively short transition time required, Red Hat started making good on the promise to be more community-focused. And what was to be Red Hat Linux 10? Instead, released as Fedora Core 1 with extras. Those extras were Warren Tagami's Fedora Linux project added directly in. And there would be a transition script or package for migration of Red Hat Linux to Fedora Core 2. Yeah, and this is about where I enter. So I'm going to talk about that when we get the history done in my experience. I'm going to roll the clock back to here. In December, the first alpha of Chaos, based on RHEL 2.1, is released to the public. 
Three weeks later, CentOS 3 Alpha, headed up by Lance Davis, based on RHEL 3, was released. Another week later, on December 30th, CentOS 2 Beta, headed up by John Newbigin, and based on RHEL 2.1, Advanced Server, was also released and was the true public birth of CentOS. The bumpy transition from Red Hat Linux to Red Hat Enterprise Linux was an expensive one, and the CentOS crew were certainly not the only groups around that wanted to debrand and rebuild RHEL for their own purposes. As is the way in Linux, many other projects also began to spring up to provide clones. So I wanted to take a couple minutes to mention them as they mirror much of the landscape we see today in the RHEL clone world. So backing up, a little to November 14th of 2003, we saw the first release candidate for White Box Enterprise Linux, WBEL, based on RHEL 3, backed by the work of John Morris and others. We'll affectionately call it White Box from here. And after a month, White Box 3 was released to the world. In May of 2004, White Box 4, based on RHEL 4, is released. During the next two years, Whitebox 3 and 4 would steadily get updates, except for the ISP cutover, the major server failure, and a whole lot of life getting in the way between mid-2005 and early 2006. But after that, the respins mostly kept spinning. And in June 2007, John notes that Whitebox 5 is in the works, and respins of Whitebox 3 and 4 are also on the way. Now. Whitebox did get that respin of 4 out as the very last release of Whitebox Linux after Red Hat released some last-minute changes to OpenOffice, but ultimately, though, version 5 never saw the light of day outside of internal development spins, and the promises to continue building respins alongside RHEL of Whitebox 4 never saw the light either. So rewind again to 2003, when David Parsley registered DowLinux.org and in December, started getting the site together. He makes it clear that the shortened lifespan of the previous Red Hat Linux products, as well as the changeover to Fedora with a much faster cadence, wasn't going to cut it. David wanted RHEL for the long-term support, and instead of using up-to-date as the Red Hat products used, he could slip in yum to manage updates. It turns out that the project really had its origins during the RHEL 2.1 lifecycle as David used it internally at his workplace. Now, in the public, the first official release was DAO Linux Release 1, based on RHEL 3, on December 16th of 2003. After Release 1, the versioning changed to match RHEL and made things a little easier to understand ahead of the release of DAO Linux 4 in April of 2005. Over the next year, updates kept flowing, but in June of 2006, David had to switch jobs. And that meant no more work time used for Dow. And his priority was his family. So instead of letting Dow and its users suffer, plans were laid to fold Dow into CentOS so folks could continue enjoying a RHEL clone without much work. One update and a simple change in a yum configuration, and it's mostly done. Back again to 2003 for the last time, we hit the longest running of the three clones. Up until now, there were many physics and science labs that were using heavily customized Linux boxes to run the software they needed. But sharing software and information 
as always happens in science, was made extremely difficult because of differences in things like glibc, rpm versus deb, and other dependency issues. But in 2003, the distribution Fermilab and CERN were using was discontinued, and the road to choosing a new one began. Red Hat Enterprise Linux wasn't an easy choice for either lab, but the long support lifecycle, stability, and security was enticing. Scientific Linux, based on RHEL, was announced at HEPIX in late 2003 by Fermilab, and CERN soon joined. And in May of 2004, Scientific Linux 3.0.1, based on RHEL 3, named Lithium, was released. While Scientific Linux doesn't make new releases today, its only living RHEL descendant is Scientific Linux 7, which will see its support end in 2024 when RHEL 7 goes end of life. So, back to CentOS and its brother Chaos. While Chaos 1, the proof of concept, was intended to be finished and released at the end of 2003, it wasn't until February of 2004 that the final release made it to Mirrors. It was based on RHEL 2.1. But CentOS kept moving right along. And in March, CentOS 3.1 is released based on RHEL 3. In April, CentOS 2 released as expected. A few months later, CentOS 3.3 released based on the third update from Red Hat. And according to Karanbir Singh, known simply as KB around the development circles, was a contributor at the time. He noted that 3.3 was the first proper release. The target was 100 downloads. They got 500. In January of 2005, after Red Hat dropped update 4, CentOS 3.4 was released. And KB noted that if the clone got 2,000 downloads, it would be a sign of success. The count quickly rose to 15,000. It was at this point that the folks involved knew CentOS was going to be big. It obviously filled a niche. In February, CentOS received a cease and desist letter from the lawyers over at Red Hat in regards to using the Red Hat logos and name on the CentOS.org website. The letter required the CentOS team to scrub any markings from any and all of their pages so as to avoid any type of accidental affiliation. CentOS's response gave off very he who shall not be named vibes, as they referred to Red Hat as prominent North American enterprise Linux vendor. In March, CentOS 4 was released two weeks after its upstream RHEL 4, and this seemed to be a turning point where news outlets really started picking up the steam on coverage for the clone. Shortly after, Lance Davis announces that CentOS is separating itself from the Chaos Project. This caused a lot of concern in the community, and was the first time since its inception that CentOS was at risk of losing its user base. In May, Chaos 2 is announced, and based on RHEL 3. In March of 2007, RHEL 5 is released with YUM, instead of UpToDate, that was used up until this release. And in April, CentOS 5 followed. Then in May, Fedora Core and Fedora Extras merge, bringing together the two pieces that make Fedora what it is today. In 2008, while development for Chaos 2 was cooling down, a new distribution, 
also called Chaos, but with a different capitalization, was released by the same group. It was called Chaos NSA. Its focus was for high-performance servers, compute nodes, and appliances. February 25th of 2009, Chaos NSA drops the NSA and simply becomes Chaos Linux. And in July, Lance Davis, one of the founders and lead of the CentOS 2 release, had been missing for many months. And at this point, the community banded together to write an open letter to request his return so that continuity can be established. It was signed by prominent CentOS figures like Russ Harold, Jim Perrin, and Johnny Hughes. And on August 1st, Lance Davis surrendered the domain and other assets to the project at large. This was another point that brought CentOS to the brink of destruction. On October 14th, Chaos Linux 1.0.25 is released and is the last release of Chaos ever. Long live CentOS. In November of 2010, RHEL was, up until this point, on a two-ish year release cadence and managed to miss that window for RHEL 6 by almost an additional two years. And normally, that wouldn't be a problem for CentOS. Infighting and miscommunication put the release, not weeks, but months out. Of course, the Lance Davis debacle didn't help things. Not only that, but Red Hat changed their kernel packages and patches from being fully open to a single kernel source package making troubleshooting downstream in clones like CentOS almost impossible. And in July of 2011, CentOS 6 is released after an eight-month struggle to get it out the door. When questions began to arise in February of that year, the CentOS team claimed that CentOS 6 was about 30 packages away from release, insinuating that the release was fairly imminent. However, as we see, that didn't quite pan out. This, combined with the mixed messaging and overall lack of communication, caused the users of the clone to again threatened to leave, and some surely did. But we wouldn't be doing a CentOS history if CentOS had not soldiered on. Fast forward to January of 2014. Red Hat acquires CentOS, and longtime developers like Jim Perrin, KB, and Johnny Hughes, to name a few. And again, the user base of CentOS is in an uproar. More threats to leave, and more did. In July, CentOS 7 is released. After the uproar from 2014 settled, we fast forward again to 2019, which saw a string of shakeups. The first of these being Red Hat leaving Shadow Man behind in May. He was replaced with a simple red fedora with a black band. Then, in September, Red Hat announces CentOS Stream. The announcement was absolutely not well-received, except for a select few. And it was a rocky start. And confusion was everywhere. With reports of it being called CentOS Streams and references to a rolling release adding to the confusion. But one good thing would certainly come of the change. 
contributors to CentOS are now also de facto contributors to Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Non-Red Hat subscribers can now contribute. Whereas before, the recommendation from Red Hat themselves was to file a bug report. But to do that, you needed to be a paid subscriber to get access to the bug reporting systems. At some point during this transition, CentOS quietly became CentOS Linux for future releases, likely to differentiate the two distributions. CentOS Linux, of course, being the original downstream RHEL clone, and CentOS Stream living slightly upstream of RHEL. Later in September, CentOS Linux 8 and CentOS Stream 8 are released. And by looking at the dates, we can see that CentOS Linux 8 was ready for quite some time before it was actually released, which isn't normal in any of the previous cases of CentOS, nor was it the case after. There was certainly some amount of lineup between CentOS 8 and CentOS 8 Stream's release. To compound the release announcement's confusion, there was no official end-of-life date noted for CentOS Linux 8. However, astute community members posted what it should be, based on previous life cycles, on an official CentOS webpage. After Red Hat learned about this, they quickly went into damage control mode because the unreleased end-of-life date was really December 31st of 2021, much to the chagrin of CentOS 8 users, this was much shorter than the noted and normal 10 years of support. And this again conjured the pitchforks. The user base was not happy. January 2021. Red Hat changes the way their dev subscriptions work. Prior to this, free options were available, but not really enough to do much work with. However, now, 16 RHEL licenses can be had for development environments for free. The program which was slated to plug holes felt when CentOS 8's demise was imminent still wouldn't be released until the 1st of February. Still in January, Brian Exelbeard, a CentOS board member, said in an interview with the Register that the CentOS board at large did not have any say in what happened with CentOS 8 and the transition to CentOS 8 Stream. New clones, now that CentOS would no longer live in that role, cropped up. Project Linux, later renamed to Alma Linux, with Alma meaning soul, stepped up with a release in March based on RHEL 8.3 and backed by Cloud Linux. They continue maintenance to this day. Another of the clones came in June, called Rocky Linux. The name honors the late Rocky McGaw. Theirs was based on RHEL 8.4, and is also actively maintained and backed by a self-imposed not-for-profit. 2022. CentOS 9 Stream is released with an expected end of life in 2027, and is what we have been running the entire month. As far as we can tell, there wasn't much drama surrounding this release. And looking ahead, in 2024, we'll see CentOS 10 stream, which is obviously not out yet, and if trends hold, will likely be based on Fedora 40, 
and again, assuming an end-of-life date sometime in 2029. You can catch all these great topics as they unfold on our subreddit and our news channel on Discord. Uh, we got all the great links, you know, Linux user space, dacho, slash Reddit, Discord, Mastodon, Telegram, Matrix, Twitch, Twitter. We got them all. Just go there. Um, I think I even added some more recently. I don't even remember what they are anymore. But if, you're, uh, if yeah. you're looking for it, like just, you know, Linux user space dot show slash whatever. I've I've told I've told you before you gotta play the game. If you think we have it, you got a Linux user space dot show slash and guess. Malware. It is probably, it go, probably go, look, go look for malware. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. That'll be good. Anyway, Linux user space dot show. Dan, how'd it go? Leo, it went it went really well for me. Um I know you had your font problem. Um um I did. So that, that was the thing. But you know, again, I'll just I'll be patient. I can I can be patient sometimes. So first class citizen here is uh, a lot of great things. Uh, so you get all that Red Hat stuff. Yeah, that's available to you. Lots of testing. That's 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 something that I think I've learned about CentOS Stream over the over the past little while. Um, yeah. I don't got build it li as like a rolling release. It's not quite well. It, that. it, it leads rel. Um, but it's still very, very stable. Right. It, it, it's like what you should expect in, you know, six months when the next release of RHEL, you know, the point release or whatever is, is released. Um, so yep. it's, it's very, it's gone through a bunch of QA. It's not just rolled out there like the Arch or AUR or Git or any of that stuff. It, yep. it It's had some testing and has gone through some QA. I do use a little CentOS kind of in the background. Um, I don't use it for any production things or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But um, but I do I do notice it. Um, really, seriously, what's funny about that is I think um, I, I use CentOS mostly for server-y stuff. Right. And I, I have, and for years, I mean, well, since since the announcement of CentOS 8 Stream, as soon as they released it, I, just, I hopped on it because yeah. I was like, how bad could it be? Right. I really wanted to know, and it was, and it was fine. It it has been fine. Seriously, the only yeah. bug that I noticed was a was a was a graphical user facing one in the fonts. Yeah. And mm, yeah. Yeah. Whatever. I mean, and, and that's that's kind of a thing that you you might not encounter a lot because I don't know that the you know the workstation mode is something that um, right. is the main use case here, although. It's a pretty good one, and um, it's it's very solid in that regard. I think you, yeah. you could. Um, we we were playing pretty fast and I, I specifically me. Mm -hmm. I was playing pretty fast and loose with the you know CentOS stream is a distro, and I'm going to treat it like every other distro. But that's uh, yeah, I don't think that's really what it's for. Right. Well, I I did too. I did some of that, but mostly I looked at it from. Um, if I had this set up as a workstation and I was someone that was a systems administrator and, and used RHEL probably, um, could I test my things and make sure they worked um, in, a, in a workstation environment mm -hmm. before I went and rolled them out on my server? And so that was the, the viewpoint I took um, and is probably a really good use case for this, I, I feel like. Um, Based on that, though, because it's, um, you know, RHEL and you, you don't get a lot of options for 
desktop environment things, right? <laughs> you, no. You get, you get GNOME. And you get no, that's it. That's yeah, that's, yeah, yep. yep. <laughs> so they do have like some window, like, well, they don't have much in regards of window managers either. So I was kind of seeking something that was a little more lightweight because mm -hmm. I'm doing this on my laptop. It's not an actual server. So um, it's not quite beefy enough, um, like what you'd you'd find in a normal workstation. So right. I, I was trying to, trying to trim it up a little bit. And, uh, and so I, um, I installed i3, which is what cool. they have. They have that. But, but that was actually in the repositories. That was in the repositories. I don't wow. think that was in Apple. Maybe yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I almost immediately uh, enabled Apple because TLP, that's where that lives. So, and, and it's on a laptop. Right. So I need that. I did enable Apple. I don't think that's where that was, but I could be wrong about that one. Yeah. Anyway, it helped me a lot because then I could run more things uh and so i i chose to do podman i mentioned this last time we talked about it a little bit i did podman i i added uh portainer uh on it as like one of the first pods or whatever you call them containers um and then i is it a pod is it is that what they call it i guess that's what they call them yeah i think that's what well, they're right, called because pod man is in manager pod pod manager so yeah. they're pods they're, huh? Yeah. Well, con, which is a pods, container type. Pod, pods roll off the tongue better than container does. They, so they you know, do. You know, they do. Spin up a new pod. Just pod this, pod that. Exactly. And so, Portainer is a a another container management thing, if you will. But it's graphical, right? So you can adjust the um, you know, the mounts. You know the mount points, the volumes, um, mm -hmm. your networks. You can you can you can add all those, um, and your ports and all of that stuff, right? Just in a nice GUI. You can start and stop. You can look at the logs. You can look at the console. You can do all those things. And um, I guess akin to that, if you were going to use an application, would be like uh, Docker Desktop. But there's also Podman Desktop too. Which Interesting. Um, yeah. is 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 uh they do a lot of the same things. And so Podman Desktop is kind of cool because it can reach out to Docker things, um or you know, Podman, obviously. So um mm -hmm. there's there's a whole bunch of things that that are baked into that, which are kind of great. Yeah, so Port Portainer can do that, uh both Podman and Docker, right? Yep. Yeah, so cool. Portainer yeah. doesn't know that it's not Docker, I guess, if you will. Really? No, because it's it's looking at the the you you point the um the the socket, if you will, uh, which would be like Docker, right? Um, mm -hmm. normally you can point that to the Podman one. Podman is almost a drop-in replacement for Docker. And the, that's like, why Portainer doesn't care. That's why Portainer it, it, it does not It runs the same care. options and the same everything else, but it, I didn't you know, find it, anything that it didn't do well. Um, I guess one hang up you might find is you have to tune SE Linux, which is true for a lot of server y things. Um, mm -hmm. SE Linux can be, can get in your way potentially. Yeah. So either you disable it entirely, which is probably not recommended. Or you figure out how to tune it for what you're doing. Um, I guess that's right. the takeaway, right? So, and and no, I mean, that could be the case here with, with your containers as well. So, once you get that hurdle gone, 
you really don't notice a difference. Podman, yeah. Docker, they feel sort of the same. Obviously, they're different. Um, but like the the calls and stuff are the same. So that's pretty nice. Yeah, I played around with that a lot. Nice. So the burning question that I've got in the back of my mind. What kind of containers did you run? Um, like mostly servery stuff, or were there some desktop apps? I didn't run any desktop apps. I did some servery ones. Like so, you know, there's a bunch of different dashboard things. So I play, played around with a bunch of different dashboards to kind of figure mm-hmm. out what do I is there something one of these that I might want to run in in my home lab, if you will. So uh-huh. like Heimdall is one of them. And what what does Heimdall do? Uh, it's just a just a dashboard, if you will. And so like it's quick links to your server stuff. Um like server stats, like CPU usage no, and no, disk no, no, usage no. Just and like stuff like that. Or links to get to the web interface on your thing. Oh, oh, got it. Okay. Honestly, I could do most of this in um Vivaldi anyway, like on the start page or whatever, but I guess you can keep it separate because it could be your home lab. So that's Kind of cool. Ah, internal links versus Vivaldi's public links or something like that. You can keep those separate. Exactly. So it's like whatever you have running in your home lab, you can create a nice little dashboard that you can click on it and get to the web interface and do your thing. So like Nextcloud, I had, I actually did put, you know, Nextcloud as a link, even though I had that separate from what I was doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And so external links work, internal things like you're running on that server, they all work. It's just a little web interface that was kind of cool there's a few of them out there that do this heimdall's one dashy's one homer i think is another one mm-hmm. i played around with a few of those just to kind of see if that was something i wanted to keep around not really related to anything so i could spin those up you know start them stop them change things it was nice it was really convenient and it, it all worked pretty great nice so the other thing that I messed around with, also server type oriented, was cockpit. Now I love cockpit, and by default that is enabled on every CentOS installation. Am I? I think that's right. Um, it wasn't on the workstation. I did have to install it. I think. Maybe I'm thinking of the last time I installed the OG. CentOS 8. But the server, and... it might be enabled anyway. I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, did, I actually didn't even check. I didn't even try to log into cockpit or anything this go around. Because, um, yeah, I was using it as just a regular old machine. Uh, but now that I think about it, man, that would be kind of cool. Even if, I, if, if it's not installed now, I should probably go install it before, you know, uh, before I get rid of it or whatever I'm going to do with it. Uh, and just, just see. That'd be cool. It's super handy tool. Especially if you have a fleet of machines and you kind of want to see what's going on with them, you can have cockpit running on one of them and then it can connect to all of your machines, if you will. And so you can see storage stats, you know, um, you know, RAM usage. like Yeah, RAM usage, CPU CPU usage, usage, all of uh, that stuff. And the cool thing is one of my favorite things about cockpit is, um, you know, when I'm showing people around Linux, this is one of the things that I start with. Mm-hmm. And say, you know, before I scare you with the command line, because you can do all of this stuff from the command line. You can. Um, here's a cockpit. It's a nice GUI front end that you can click on and you can uh, like spin up new storage, do partitioning. Yes. Um, 
all you can actually even change uh play around with your networking like change a, a, a network card into bridged mode so that you can use it with um like uh, uh kvm or something like yep. that you can even run kvm vms yes. from within cockpit and interact with them yes yep so it is a it is one of my favorite tools and it works on almost everything if if your distribution it does, is I I know you can run it on Debian, you can run it on Ubuntu, you can run it on, yep. you know, obviously Fedora and CentOS and RHEL, any of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm sure OpenSUSE will accept it nicely as well. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there's, not, there's not much left after that, right? I mean, we covered most of the bases. As It doesn't really matter, but I do really enjoy the fact that when you install Cockpit, it's got the icon of your distro as you log in to yeah. Cockpit. Mm-hmm. Um, just a nice touch. I don't, it doesn't matter, but it is a nice touch. It, it's a good-looking tool, and you're right. It gives you a lot of things right there in your face. Um, even if you do end up doing things on the command line, which you can do through Cockpit, because yes. it, it, it will take you to the, you know, the open up a little terminal in your in your web browser so mm-hmm. that you can do things in there. Um, it's, it's, a, it's not a bad launching place, right? And like I said, not at all. you can have multiple servers listed in the side there in cockpit because it will connect to all of them if you add the connections to them. So it's a pretty useful tool. And like you said, virtualization, I think I'd like where they've gone with virtualization, probably the best. I think that's, that's pretty neat stuff. Well, it's finally an answer on Linux to what ESXi does, like the, the VMware thing where you can essentially log into a web interface and just control all your VMs. Right. Um, That is uh, It's close. Not quite. Yeah. It's close. It's uh, still. I think it's spice is the uh, the uh, how it renders stuff the, onto the, the console. Eh, yeah, yeah. So it's not quite as fast, but I mean, it's okay. If, if 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 my you know VMware server blew up and I needed something right now, um, it would not be a bad choice, and I no. I don't think it would be an issue because most of the stuff that I end up doing anyway, I just SSH in and do, which requires no graphics. Right. Um. So it would only be the, you know, the small five to 10% of stuff that I do mm-hmm. that I would need a mouse with. Exactly. So that was pretty cool. Um, interestingly, um, it, Fedora announced a while ago that they were working on a new installer. I, I And it's going to incorporate some cockpit stuff uh, from what I know. Really? Um, now that's interesting. I don't know how far, I mean, obviously, since it's not released, we can't, I have no idea. Right. But I don't, and I don't know how far they're taking it, but I thought that was kind of a cool concept. Um, yeah. Basically, to use that web interface um, that you already have established and take that a little bit further and use it in the installer. I mean, why so. wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? It's already there. The, and, it, and it can already do all of these things, right? I know, I know. So uh, to the so a collective sigh when that drops a collective sigh across the uh, the Linux ecosystem. Oh God, they finally got rid of Anaconda. Nice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like yeah. Anaconda. Maybe it's, it's probably a it's trauma okay. thing. Okay, I think I think the back and forth bits that you end up doing are. But I, I like that. Confusing to some people, the flow isn't natural. I guess. It's not progressive. It's not, right. you know, going from left to right and hitting everything along the way. What right. it's doing 
the way that I see it is if you if you have like a uh, a set of drawers with your clothes in it, right? Right. Open one drawer, get your underwear. Open another right. drawer, get your socks. Open another drawer, get your shirt, get your pants. And, you know, like that's how yep. I see it. Yep. And so everything is nice and com- compartmentalized. And so you only have to think about one thing, not about what's next. You think about what's in front of you, answer that question, move on to the next thing. And it, you know, kicks you back out. And my favorite part of Anaconda that that I hope this part doesn't go away, but, you know, probably will. The overview, when you're done yeah. making all the changes and before you click, yes, I want to destroy partitions, right? Like before you do that, it gives you a nice overview of everything you've chosen. It doesn't give you like um, Ubiquity and uh, Calamaris. It doesn't give you like this, I, I feel like overly dense text of the changes that are about to happen. I'm not trying to read it. I I, I just, I like how it's in small little pieces, but I'm I'm uh, uh, I'm in the minority, so um, no, I'm, I'll no. be sad to see it go. Uh, well, I'm won't be too sad. I think the confusing part is yes, everything's compartmentalized, um, but sometimes um, not understanding that I didn't get all of my socks put back in the drawer, you know, or whatever. <laughs> when when it's red. <laughs> right. I missed a red one or something. And so like, what is wrong with you? I think that's the frustrating part, right? When it says, yeah. you know, you haven't identified all your partitions or something or, um, you know, one of those types of things that, that, that you get hung up on because it's not progressive and you can't say, oh, this is where it failed. Um, you know, because you can do it. You can do all of them at any point in time. Yeah. And so you don't know what part you 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 didn't necessarily complete sometimes when the little box Uh, doesn't say go, (laughs) you know. Yeah, I guess. So I I, I think that's it. But that's just my take on it. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just not the the flow is wrong. Yeah, I I can see that. I I can I can personally see that, Um, man, but I really am going to be sad to see it go. I I really I, I don't say I prefer it. Um, but I do think it was a, it was definitely a decent installer. Right. And we, I mean, we had to, we had to interact with it to install CentOS 9 in the first place. We did. And, and, and and so that's why I bring it up is because it's the installer that we used here too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it did, it did eat my, my boot partition. Oh yeah. So. Oh yeah. (laughs) I ended up, you know, I, I, I tried to install it alongside my, uh, you know, a uh, lunar lobster, uh, Lubuntu, um, install that I've been testing, yeah. right? Doing testing things. Well, and so side, side by side, as in on the same disc. Oh, right? yeah, sure. On the same disc. Yeah. Okay. Why not? Right, right, okay. <laughs> sure. Whatever. <laughs> hey, just dive in there, man. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I'd already had the partitions there. So why not? I was basically just plopping it down on a partition that already existed. Right. Um, so that should have been easy, but it, it just wiped out my boot, but it didn't really wipe out my boot. It actually picked up that, that the lunar lobster was there, but, um, it wouldn't complete booting. It would start Plymouth. Um, but it somehow nuked the kernel, I think from running oh. or the, the part, the boots, you know, after the boot, if you will. 
Well, that's not good. So it touched the wrong partition, even though it should not have. And I don't know where I went wrong. I went wrong somewhere. I don't know where I went wrong, but I went wrong. Well, okay. So the one thing I will say about Anaconda is that partitioner. Not the greatest. If we were to keep Anaconda, which we are not, um, I would be an advocate for, man, clean that up because that can be very confusing. Very confusing. I lucked out in partitioning because, uh, as I mentioned every single time I tell you about a distribution, I install Linux pretty much always and solely on its own disk. So yeah, uh, you know. So and and that was the case with this one as well. I have uh, I have two separate sizes of disks too because I've been burned by yeah. that, uh, as I mentioned on the last live stream. But um, yeah, that that's that's it, right? I I choose the disk. I say, all right. CentOS, you do with that disk what you will. Don't touch anything else, mm-hmm. but have the disk and do whatever you want to. Right. And that, I think that that prevents me from running into a lot of the issues that I oh, think I'm, a lot of I'm sure. dual, tri, quad, quint. I try not booters. to get too crazy, but you know, you know, I was testing two things on the same machine. I, yeah, like it's a yeah. testing machine. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so it was fine because it it, le- it allowed me to go through the installer on Lubuntu again and get a little more QA done on that as well. So <laughs> whatever, <laughs> that's not a plus. <laughs> well, it was in this case, but it's, it's a plus for Lubuntu, but it's definitely not a plus in the CentOS column. It shouldn't have happened that way, but I did it no. anyway. Um, Ouch! It, I I don't feel bitter about it. No. So other than that, like those are the things I tested a lot. But one thing I did want to mention on, I actually have history really far back. So uh, Red Hat Linux 5.1, 5.2, somewhere around there. So 97, 98 time frame. Mm-hmm. That was my first entry into Linux ever. And <gasps> so I went to a computer store and up on the shelf is a Red Hat I've... Linux box, right? And I'm like, yeah, and I'm like, well, different logo, but different you know, logo, same. but the same thing. So I'm like, ooh, that's really cool. Um, so like, I bring that home and I try it out, and um, wow, like I mentioned in the pre-show, Linux back in those days, you were almost guaranteed that some part of your hardware wasn't yep. gonna be supported and work correctly. Yeah, in in yeah, that happened there. I had most of my stuff working. But it was a little strange. And obviously, in the early days, there was not feature parity with all of the applications that were available or not even all of the applications were available. So I struggled Uh a bit and um, eventually reverted back to the other side for a little while. So I put that down and then um, I pick it back up, though, about Red Hat Linux 9. Eight, nine, somewhere oh, around yeah, there, yeah, right? Yeah. And so this is right before they they changed things to Fedora Core, which we had mentioned in the history. Um, and um, that was fine. Like by then, we've progressed enough in time that most things were pretty well supported. And so you kind of picked your distro at that point what was best supported for hardware. Um, and in my case, Fedora, well, Red Hat 9 worked pretty good. Like I had all of mm. the things I had. My, my video card was working. Nice. My, my sound was working. Kind of need um, both of those. And <laughs> I had a 
I did have high speed internet by that point. So, um, oh, nice. So it was just a Nick thing. So my then. network card was also working, which was great. Beautiful. So I had, had all of the key components there. Um, and that was pretty great. Transitioned into Fedora Core um, through the upgrade transition path, whatever you want to call that, um, mm -hmm. that they gave you to, to move over to that. And then obviously things were a lot better because, like I say, the extra stuff was kind of packaged in there. So that gave you some extra bits from what I remember. Mm -hmm. I mean, granted, this is a while ago, so I'm really right. stretching my brain cells here. But I remember Fedora Core being really pretty good. And I stayed on that for a few releases until Ubuntu really got some traction Probably 2006, five, six time frame, six, yeah. 2006, probably. On the Fedora Core thing, yeah. Um, that was uh, when I had decided that being an admin was uh -huh. uh, a good choice. Okay. And a lot of the, a lot of the books and a lot of the yeah. CDs that came with the books and things uh, was Fedora Core. It wasn't right. CentOS, even though CentOS was in its early days and that it actually got some good traction. Um, by the time, you know, I was starting to try and learn, like really actually learn yeah. stuff, it was Fedora Core. And I can't remember what version it was, but it had to have been around 2005-ish. So maybe, what is that, Fedora Core 7? Yeah, six? 8 maybe? I don't know. But I do, Some, remember, the, I do remember Core. Yeah. I, I do remember that. But keep in mind, these books always ship with the old version of Fedora that's probably not even supported anymore. You're just meant to like yeah. get in there and use the tools that are there and like just get an understanding of how Linux works. So, you know, right. if the timelines don't line up, this is why. Um but yeah, that was that was my first admin foray. Okay. It was um it was Fedora core, but I do remember all of the hardware shenanigans that you had to go through because it was about 2000 2001 and I was on Mandrake. I bought it on the shelf, brought it home did not have support for win modem like so i had an external modem at the at the point oh, when i had like, the red hat 5 you won so yeah. yeah that that took care of that right um and, and well you had a real modem had a See, real the, modem the thing about the thing about win modems was was that not a real modem they didn't they didn't right it 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 was it was software, software driven yeah and all of that software was built into windows yes and it was not Linux. So if you got a Win modem, you used it with Windows, and uh, yeah. So I didn't get any internet yeah. until uh, until I ended up on high speed, which was a couple of years later. I think I didn't get it until maybe two thousand two, and at that point, tried it again, and my Nick wasn't supported, so, so I didn't. <laughs> so so Ooh. one fun fun thing that I do remember doing when I had like that Red Hat early Red Hat. Five, six, five, one, five, two, whatever that was. I remember sharing my modem, right? So I had a little, I oh, that was my first cool. foray into networking. So I had my brother and I were both living at home and he was in college and I was in high school probably. We had networked our machines together um, because we'd, you know, probably been playing some Duke Nukem 3D or something you uh -huh. know, against each other. Anyway. I remember sharing the modem because we had a network, right? And so whenever his machine called out to the internet, it would connect to mine and then my my modem would auto dial, you know, and yeah. it'd call out. And then we had a, we had like 
almost like broadband before broadband, I guess. It was kind of cool. You could both be on the internet at the same time because before that, you both had to dial up. And that was just like, I don't know. You had to wait for one to be done and the other one to jump on. And meanwhile, nobody's getting any phone calls because you tied up the phone line, right? (laughs) I remember that. Well, when, when phone calls came in, like the internet stopped for me. Uh, yeah, if you had call waiting or something, it'd like beep on the phone and then like it'd interrupt your connection. Yep, 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 yep. yep. I remember that. Like whenever the web pages stopped loading, I was like, oh, somebody tried to call. calling my mom. Yep, yep, <laughs> yep. And so. But I do remember uh, just just because I, I can't not. I remember I had a friend. We were playing Command and Conquer 95. We didn't have any way to network our two computers together because I don't think either of them had uh, network cards. Yeah. And so we had to like go through all of the weirdness of doing a null modem connection. Oh yeah. And uh yeah, that that took forever <laughs> to figure out. But eventually we got to the point where uh we were able to uh pretty badly play Command and Conquer against okay. each other. That was pretty cool. So hmm. That mm-hmm. was nice. Yeah, so those were super fun times. And I remember struggling with a lot of things and some of them being really easy. And so, you know. Linux, we all know, really shines in the network realm. And that's because the early days, it just worked. That's what it was about. Yeah, yeah exactly. And so um, that was that was my beginning into Linux. I, I mastered very little. Uh, I felt very frustrated most of the time. Oh, yeah. It was both I, of us. Yeah. I guess I learned a lot then. And I, don't, I, don't, I didn't realize that I was learning so much at the time, but I, I did. So I, I guess because of that, um, experience that I had though, I will always have Red Hat and, you know, all the, everything that came after that in, in, in my heart in a place. Mm-hmm. Um, even though for the last, oh geez, quite a, you know, quite a while I've been mostly on Ubuntu and derivatives myself. Um, yeah. I, I, and that's where I find my home just because I'm comfortable there. My preference is pretty much the same. When Ubuntu came out, it solved a lot of problems that I was having up until that point, made a whole lot more things easier. Yep. And, you know, after that, it was it was just people took the already good Ubuntu and then made it even better. And I was like, well, why don't I just try that and then get the additional benefits of, you know, already installed codecs and everything else. And mm-hmm. it makes it hard to leave a little Hotel California style, except I don't want to leave. Right. <laughs> but. I can see some really great benefits to CentOS, Red Hat, and all the things they're doing. They they and 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 I'm actually pretty excited for the change that that happened with Stream. And I can see I I know a lot of folks were really put off by it, but I think um you know they did a lot of work because like as Carl mentioned to us, that transition when CentOS eight to eight Stream and and Rel eight it, it was hard for them because rel 8 was released but centos 8 stream was supposed to be you know upstream of that right and it wasn't it, 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 it wasn't been... so it was already released so it it, it, it they had to kind of do some shifty stuff there to make it all line up for going forward um and that that was some some tough transition times and but they well you know and, they got and i tend it. to agree where, where CentOS Stream lives, 
is a fantastic place. It is. Uh, for, for a distribution to be, especially to, I mean, really kind of bolster the development of yes. the enterprise product, which is really the product that, you know, CentOS Stream is, is facilitating. Right. But, you know, the, and, and that's why I said uh, in the history that, at, you know, around CentOS 9 time, there's not a whole lot of, you know, people complaining about it because everybody's right. used to what's going on. Everybody has the right timeline. Everybody knows when something's starting exactly. and when something's ending. It was the fact that CentOS 8 Linux, not Stream, right. everybody kind of had the feeling that the rug was pulled out from under them because it was. A little bit, yeah. It really, really, really was. And, you know, I feel for anybody that was running CentOS 8 with the expectation that they were going to get at least five years, right? At least. Yeah. Because you knew something was going on. Right. But, uh, you know, you just you didn't quite know what. And then when the bomb dropped... So they, they did get two years. Well, right, right. But, you know, when you're expecting 10 or 5 know, or 10 know, or whatever, two is is not it. It's it's not what you were hoping <laughs> for. Although I will say some of the other clones, like we mentioned, they came up rel- relatively quickly. And, right. and, and that was a transition path for some people. Even before end of life of CentOS Linux, right. 8, not the stream one, the regular one. Right. Um. Those were up and ready to go. They had transition scripts. You could you could offload pretty quickly yep. to either of them. They are both, as far as I can tell, good clones. I tend myself. I tend to lean Alma. Uh, they they just they tend to be a little faster. I like that. I I don't I don't feel like anything is going to explode if you go with Rocky or anything like that. So you know, yeah, choose not. whatever you like. Maybe you just like green better. But yeah, no. So I think I think there's some options there too. If that's the thing you're looking for as well, so. Um, but yeah, like I'm, I, I like, I like the way the things are going. Um, and if we haven't said it, like Fedora kind of sits before. Oh, I love CentOS stream. Oh. We didn't, we didn't mention. Oh yeah. Oh, that way bit, before. Right? Yeah. So way before. So like, um, uh, what, what, we, we have, we... we have some cool diagrams. Uh, I do have them in higher res. So if you're watching the video, they're probably on the screen now here, here, I'm going to show. The CentOS 7 one. Yeah. Eight? Maybe eight. I don't know. Eight? Sure. The, the first one. There's three of them. I'm going to show you the first one. Okay, whatever. It's one of these. Maybe <laughs> <It'll> be <laughs> one of these. And then I'm going to show you the next one. And then I'm going to show you the next one. Yeah. And it really does show kind of where CentOS sits, yeah. where Fedora sits, and each feed into the other. And, and But that's what I was saying about CentOS. It's a fan, the, the stream. It's a fantastic place for it to sit. It is. For for it, it is. to be. And it, it just serves as a staging area, not a testing area, uh, though, you know, you can fix bugs at that point. The staging area for RHEL. And yep. it's just a really good place to be as far as, um, I agree. you know, a, a distribution that tracks its downstream enterprise counterpart. It's, right. It's pretty good, man. It's pretty good. So... I'm excited for the changes. I think uh, good results. I had good time testing the things I tested. Didn't really have any issues that would I would call major. Yeah, and that's because the QA goes into it. I think, and it's not um, it's not rolling like it was sold. The rolling word is still around, and I'm not I'm not a it's, huge it's, fan uh, of it. But it's I I would call it continuous. Continuous is a better word, right? Um, not like you think uh, rolling though. Next time, 
We made it. We made it through. I can't believe it. It took uh it took a while to gather all the stuff up together. Dan sat here with me. I did. We we did some before the show. Yeah. It does not normally take us that no. long no, to no. put it all together, but this time it was down to the wire had to get it done. We 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 put a lot into the show. Yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of soul. A lot of Alma. Yeah. Into oh, the show. I see what you did there. <laughs> Got him. Got him. <laughs> so next time, though, topics. We're going to do some topics. Um, yes, we will. You know, the normal in-between show. And if you've got some topics or some things that you want to see us cover, please let us know. Reach out. But we got to pick a distro. We got to we, we we pick sure something. Do. We got we to gotta, um, make room and install something else. So what is the something else? else it feels like it feels like we just never stop it never doing never the does no um it just keeps going and going and going why do i have that feeling i don't know but i think this one just released um and it and it it, it too never stops and that it's it's endless endless os that's what we're trying endless os 5 just got released like I don't know, a day or two before the show. So um, yeah. timing is excellent. It's it's something we haven't tested. It was on the list, and then it released, and then we were both like, ah, it's gotta be that. we can't time it better than that. Okay. It's got to okay. be that. And yep. uh, yeah, no, it's different, and it's unique, and uh, we haven't tried it yet. So there you go. That's all I need to know. So stay tuned. And tell us all of your things. Reddit's getting a little more popular right about now. So, I mean, if you're on Reddit, go ahead and subscribe to the old Linux user space. Um, Over on Twitter, we're over on Mastodon. We're over on Telegram. We're over on Matrix. We're over on Discord. I don't care how you get in touch with us. You can do it with your mind if you want. Uh, Yeah. I don't don't know if... I don't think my antenna is good enough to pick them up. But you can try. I don't know. The transmission range is short, though. You can try. I'll, yeah. I will do my best. But uh, however you do it, make sure to join the conversation. All the links that we've talked about are in the show notes. And, of course, they will show up over on linuxuserspace.show. So, Dan, where can we find you outside of uh, this this video and this audio and this everything? So you can find me at KC2BZ at Mastodon.social. And you can find me at Leo Chavez on the Twitters and at Leo Chavez at Mastodon.social. Come back in two weeks for more Linux user space. See ya. had this super quest to try out all the obscure operating <laughs> systems that I could possibly find that would run on an x86 yep. box. Yep. And uh, I found a bunch of them. Yep. And, and for me, I, I spent 30 bucks on Mandrake. Yep. I don't know what I spent on uh, on Red Hat. Whatever. I mean, I think it was about 40 bucks. So I mean, it's, it's in the same ballpark. Yep. 
but uh, but yeah, I got that, and I was like, uh, and you know, I, I kind of had an inkling of what Linux was or whatever. But you know, you bring that home, and you're like, well, I can't use it, and so it it became I don't know. I guess that's what did it. Maybe it it became like a personal mission of mine to not waste thirty bucks. <laughs> yeah, no, I I did. <laughs> so I was use like, it. I'm gonna make this work. Kinda like I did use it, kinda like and yeah. it, and it worked sort of. So yeah, but yeah, no, I had a good time with it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I certainly, without internet, because wind modem, but right. uh, I mean, I certainly played around for so long, and, and it was Mandrake's little Win2Lin yeah, little okay, thing yep. that allowed you to install Linux in a FAT32 partition on, on Windows yep. uh, that uh, that allowed me to really play and do those kinds of things. And, you know, when I wanted back on the internet, I'd reboot. But isn't that the same story that so many people have these days about gaming or that one yep. software they can't? you know, release or whatever. They got to reboot back into Windows. I still do that to this day. 